All right, we um, are continuing in uh, Thomas More's book, Councils and Thoughts. Um, and there's a subtitle, which I can never remember what that is. That's Councils and Thoughts, good enough, thank you. Um, we are in part three. Um, Brother Clary opened us up last, uh, finished last week on um, through chapter eight, and now we're in chapters nine through 12 this morning. Um, so starting off in, in chapter nine, we're talking about uh, prevailing faith. That's the title of this chapter, prevailing faith. Um, <coughs> it helps to, to ask the question, what, what does he mean here by prevailing faith in this chapter? And in regard to prevailing faith, how do I know if I have prevailing faith? How do you know if you have prevailing faith? Well, he gives us some, some insight here to consider. Um, one Puritan writer said that faith sets the soul in the prevailing way. Okay? Uh, in the prevailing way. It, it puts the soul in a position to seek and pray. I'd say that you could probably boil and simplify prevailing faith down to someone who's just not satisfied with staying put in their faith. There's, there's not satisfied with there not being any progress. Now, man certainly possesses faith. He receives faith from God. But Christ is the object of his faith. That's what makes it prevailing. Um, Christ is the object of its faith, its motivation, um, and, and really what makes the faith worth having, what makes it valuable. Our author, Thomas More, he talks about this. Um, it's, it's purpose, prevailing faith. It's, it's divine. It has divine purposes. Because what it does is it cements our souls to Christ himself. If it didn't, if it did anything other than that, we would be misled. And there would be no salvation. Because it's only found in Christ. Our faith cements our souls to Christ himself by the work of the Spirit. You know, it has, a prevailing faith has nothing to do with, you know, the man or the woman who possesses it. But it has everything to do with exalting the Lord. Not that the man or the woman who possesses it doesn't matter. But again, it's the focus of the object of that faith. Because that man or woman could be in a mess. Could be struggling. Um, uh, rather weak. But it's Christ that makes that faith valuable again. Now it's been said, you know, a number of times. You know, it's not the weak faith that saves. It's It's... I mean, rather, a weak faith can save because it's in a strong Savior. You know, when that prevailing faith, it's, it's kind of like a diamond, you know, pressure and heat being applied to it is very instrumental in its making. That pressure and that heat through the those trying times that we have, the testing, the refining of it that God brings to do that very purpose, to strengthen it. Uh, it's um, 
a prevailing faith is an active faith. It's active. It's, it's going to be working. So how do you know if you have, have this? How do you know if you have a prevailing faith? That really is the right question we should be asking ourselves. Okay? A prevailing faith is one that rests in Christ. and it, Christ is, is its object. But how do we know if we have it? We are told in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, that we are to examine ourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. There's got to be some introspection that's happening here. That has to happen. You know, are you, for example, are you heeding the Lord's command to repent? Are you aware of things that you should be repenting of? Are you blind to your sin? Are other people telling you that there's issues you need to be facing, but you're ignoring it? Hiding from it isn't going to help. We know God sees everything. We can't come to him with empty excuses. Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. He's telling this to Christians, Paul is. Are you heeding the Lord's command to, met, to repent? Uh, to discover compromisings with the world. It's not so easy to find sometimes. But we're supposed to look in, to see and test ourselves, examine. You know, often I'm reminded of that, that scripture that tells us about the... And I'm going to get, not get this perfect. So, But the deepness that's in a man's heart, those things that are deep in there, we don't know how to bring it up sometimes. Often we don't. That, that troubling thing that we have going on inside, we don't know how to bring it up. We don't know how to express it. But it's God who does that. He does. He brings it to the surface. He helps us to express these things. Uh, so I think clearly... We're being taught in Scripture that to examine ourselves, we have to be depending on the Lord to help us do that. We're not going to do it. We're not going to be able to see these things on our own. Compromise with the world, it moves the aim of our trust from Jesus to things other than Jesus. Now we all, we should... Be trusting in Christ alone. Now we should obviously trust things that are trustworthy, honest and trustworthy people, of course. Um, but none of these things can save us. Only Christ. None of these things can reconcile us to the most high and holy God, but Christ. A prevailing faith um, is a faith that also counts the promises of God. And if you're counting them, you're, you're learning them, you're knowing them, you're reading them, you're studying them. You know what they are. Um, you know, with our technology today, it's pretty easy to look up what those are um, in a Bible. These promises of God, which have never, ever failed, even when God is humbling us, you know, the, we rest in the promises of God. 
That's one of his promises that he will be doing that in our lives, this, this humbling of us. Uh, prevailing faith, it's been described as being childlike, a childlike faith. You know, that offer that needs some description, some explanation, right? Because we think of childlike, we, you know, for me, at least, the first thing I think of is childishness, which is something we should avoid. So what is a childlike faith? What, what is a childlike faith? Can someone, it's simple, perfect, yeah, it's simple, okay, it's not going to be complicated. Boy, can we make things complicated. It's simple. Anything else? An innocent trust, okay, yep. It is a childlike faith that's simple. There's an innocent trust. More, more Thomas More was saying that, that Christians usually want to think of their faith as manlike, strong, super duty. I have manlike faith. That's what I want to show off. Um, it's a Chuck Norris type faith, right? I love those jokes. You know, something that people should want for themselves just by seeing that faith in me. Man, that's some, that's some tough faith that he has. Of course, I'm kind of stretching things a bit. This man-like faith that we want sometimes instead of simple, innocent, childlike faith. This man-like faith can be, it it's, tends to be self-reliant. You know, you got to pull up your own bootstrap boots by your bootstraps, right? Those who, the Lord helps those who help themselves. You know, there's truth in these things, but man, we can really misunderstand these things. So man-like faith is more self-reliant. It's self-reasoning. It's self-able. It's self-wise. It isn't needy. Goodness, what man wants to be presented as needy? Man like faith isn't needy. It doesn't have time for prayer, not when there's battle plans to be executing. A trial like faith simply and innocently trusts like a child trusts. For those of you that are parents, sometimes the faith and trust that your child puts in you can be quite humbling. Can it not? When they don't know the stupid thing you've done, you know, an hour ago, a minute ago. How you may have been so provoking and kind to them five minutes ago, yet they still look to you with a childlike faith, a trust, if you will. This childlike faith, it doesn't have any of those traits that are manlike. It is needy. And it, it can't go a day without laboring in prayer, this childlike faith. It can't ascertain going a day without doing that. And it seems helpless. It even, it even seems ignorant at times. At least as you're looking at yourself. But this childlike faith, it knows who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good. And so it's drawn to the one who is all of each of these things. 
He's drawn to Christ, him alone. So, closing out this brief chapter before we move on, if you think your, your faith as being more that's more manlike than it is childlike, pray and ask the Lord to reveal how you are acting out arrogantly in your own faith in your life, where you're trusting in the wrong things. And do it sooner than later before you're led down some, some path that's so hard to unravel. If upon examination of your faith you see that it is more manlike than childlike, more, more manlike, then it, the less prevailing that faith is going to be. All right. Actually, I won't, before I go on to the next chapter, I have a few more thoughts on the childlike faith. Um, you know, if, if it does appear that you think and are blessed that you are believing more like a child these days and with a childlike faith, you know, a question we often want to know is how do I keep it? How do I stay in this mode, if you will, of a childlike faith? Christ said in Matthew 16, 25, he said, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will keep it. There's a, a reversal there. Right? A, a self-reasoning man-like faith would say that doesn't make sense. I'm going to find something by losing something. You keep a prevailing faith by losing yourself to a complete dependency and hope on Christ. I can't know how else better to explain it. A complete dependency upon him. Uh, Moore in his, in his chapter he wrote, quote, the hardest work faith ever has is most successfully accomplished by greatest weakness. By greatest weakness, looking trustingly to him who is strength, whose strength is all sufficient. Kind of like David before Goliath. Let's look at, think of some analogies here. David before the Goliath. He knew just as much as everyone there uh, in that valley that he was no match for Goliath by, you know, if you were to match the specs, his height, his strength, his weight, all these things. He was no match. But David was so devoted to the Lord that that blasphemy that was being uttered by the giant, in that is instance, in that instance, it called for David to silence and humble that Philistine. It was his faith was, was kindled, if you will. It was a calling from the Lord, and David, he exercised a childlike faith in that instance, never once doubting the Lord's design. Because if you recall, he said, even if he doesn't deliver me, he knew that the Lord would accomplish his perfect and holy and good purposes, even if it didn't pan out the way David thought it would. That is a complete dependency upon him that he had. Now, we, we, we face overwhelming odds in the face of a world and the devil that desires us. The world and the devil desires us. 
We should, like David, know better that we don't stand a chance in our own strength to overcome. But rather, like David, we, we should not hesitate for a moment to trust in what God has called us to do in his word. That, to believe those promises. To count them, to know them. It's a good to remember those times in your own life when you have exercised a prevailing childlike faith. When you have overcome overwhelming odds of your own. Remembering those times because it's encouraging to do that. Now, Emily and I, we often recall what God accomplished in order for us to adopt Alice. It was scary at times. But we really only, you know, it was only scary when we looked too far ahead of ourselves. Where only God could see. But we did much better, I think, honey. I think we did much better exercising a prevailing faith when we concerned ourselves with only the demands of that day. Yeah. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah not tomorrow's worries. And that goes for all of us. When we get to looking too far ahead of us, it's, it's overwhelming. The Lord tells us not to worry about tomorrow. Today's concerns are sufficient for our, our worries or our concerns, what happens in the day that we have at the moment. So don't get too far in front of your skis, I think is a saying that I've heard before. All right, well, I really am going to close on this chapter now um, um, on prevailing faith. Some final words from the author. He said, The childlike trust which grows out of weakness, which grows out of pain and affliction, is more honoring to the Lord than the trust which grows out of health, which grows out of ease and the impulse of many activities. He goes on to say, he says, Doctrine... Doctrine is for our instruction and for our belief. Jesus himself is for our heart, our trust and love. He's not a friend for sunny days only, but also when the storm comes and the thick black cloud, for he is in both the storm and in the cloud. So brothers and sisters, a faith that prevails is one that rests on him. All right, let's go to the next chapter, chapter 10. Uh, the chapter is entitled, On Being Led by the Spirit. So, the work of the Holy Spirit uh, in, in our lives, here on earth, it, it points us to Christ. That is the ministry that the Spirit carries out, pointing us to Christ. Some verses here I have uh, written down. Let's go over them. John 14, verse 26 says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Right? Pointing to Christ. Teaching. Bringing to remembrance. John 15, 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father... He will bear witness about me. Again, pointing to Christ. That's what the Spirit's doing. Lastly, John 16, verses 14 through 15. 
Christ says, he will glorify me. Speaking of the Spirit, he will glorify me. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The work of the Spirit, that his ministry is to point us to Christ. The unbeliever, he's led by his flesh. He's led by his flesh that's in concert with the world and with the devil. Now, he may put on a good show, but his, his, far, his heart is, is festering with selfishness and insolence to God. Anything that God would command. He hates it. You know, no matter how put together that person may seem. No matter how put together and confident in the world an unbeliever may seem, we shouldn't be fooled. And we should not be intimidated by such a person. And we often are. We often are to our shame. We shouldn't be intimidated by them. We have the Spirit of God directing and leading us toward Christ and his kingdom, his purposes. You know, we should be pitying them for the path that they're on. We should not be intimidated by them. So how does the Holy Spirit lead us? How does he lead us? Well, we know scripture teaches us that he begins by giving us a a new heart, you know, regeneration. Our eyes are opened. We have spiritual eyes now, so to speak. Now we can see the ugliness of sin for the first time and more and more and more as we're being sanctified. You see your sin and the Spirit leads you to Christ. Because you're in that moment, you're being humbled by that sin. You need Christ. The Spirit leads you to him. It's in perfect concert with the scripture, the way the Spirit leads us. It's not in contradiction ever with the scriptures. You know, learning doctrines and promises, leading us to believe these things, that's what the Spirit is doing through the Word of God, always pointing us back to Christ. So where does he lead us? Where does the Holy Spirit lead us? Well, the Spirit, the ministry of the Spirit is to draw elect sinners to Christ, okay? And he makes us desire new things. And praise God, he does that. I'm still, I'm sure like many of you, wanting to desire more and more of the right things and less and less of the wrong things. Those things that never satisfy and only make me feel shameful. Desiring new things. You know, like the Lord himself. Uh, the truth of the word. If you find yourself not desiring the truth of the word, well, the Spirit would say he would be pointing you back to Christ in prayerfulness. It's that constant being pointed to Christ. That's the ministry of the Spirit. More, Thomas More, he reminds us 
what the scriptures teach of the Spirit's leadings. You know, to grow spiritually. The Spirit is constantly um, helping us to grow spiritually. The Lord himself was made able to satisfy the demands of the Father and the covenant that he had to fulfill with the Spirit's help. That same Spirit which raised Christ from the dead is helping us to do these same things, to grow spiritually, to have more and more of Christ being lived from the inside out. More and more to know him better, to love him better, to serve him better. That's what the Spirit is doing. That's where he's leading us. And when Christ is, is magnified from this and, and exalted, we're strengthened and we're encouraged in our obedience and in our faithfulness. But the enemy, the great enemy, the devil, he wants, he wants to harm the kingdom of God. And he wants to do it in two ways, at least two ways. He wants to try to steal or diminish the glory of God. And he wants to make our faith a wreck. To steal the glory of God or diminish it. And he wants to make our faith a wreck. Continually trying to hinder the work of the Spirit. Trying to lead us to, to give ourselves over to sin. When we follow that path, it's an open invitation for that, that enemy to make us of very little use for the kingdom of Christ. All right, let's move on to chapter 11. To the believer about realizing Christ's presence. Uh, this, this chapter was, um, was very interesting, I found. Um, you know, this is a, a very specific topic here. He's, he's focusing in on the, the presence of Christ. Uh, and it's, I don't find that it's, uh, it's often talked about. Um, it's, it, when it is, it's kind of um, a, um, an ancillary topic. A subtopic, but it's never the. It's off, hardly often the focus of of someone's um, teaching, and, and that's what he does here in this chapter. Um, about wanting to realize that presence of Christ. You know, how many times have you prayed for Christ's presence in your life? How many times have you done that? If you had to answer yourself, there, how could it's more times than you can probably count. But Moore explains in his book, he says, we are ignorant of the promise of Christ's presence. We are suffering in ignorance here, he says. He writes, you do not make his presence, you do not, you do not make Christ's presence and his love a fact by believing it. You don't make it a fact by believing it. He says the fact already exists and you have his word for it. Something we need to remember when we're asking for the, you know, we're desiring the presence of Christ in our life. With the first Adam's failure to keep the covenant of God, that God made with him, with mankind, 
we know that you know we're thrown into despair and, and in, thrown into an estrangement from God by failing to keep the covenant. And it passed on down to us. But it was Christ, it was the last Adam's covenantal obedience that draws people into the presence of God. Christ has done this for his people, drawing us into the presence of God. That is a fact, and we have his word for it. Christians, true descendants of the last Adam, from the days of the first Adam to the time that lies ahead of us, all the elect of God, we can enjoy a peaceful relationship with God because of Christ's drawing us to him and reconciling us to him. You know, before Christ ascended into heaven, before he ascended into heaven, he gave a promise. He gave a promise to his disciples, which is for you and me also. He promised that he will always be with us. In Matthew 28, 18 and 20, verses 18 and 20, he says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. To the end of the age. Now, we must believe this. We need to believe this. But, but our believing it, your believing it, doesn't make it tr true. It is a fact. Christ has said so. To the end of the age, he is with us always. On page 167, Thomas More, he argues, he says, Many children of God think that before they can have realized joy of Christ's presence, that there must be a consciousness of his presence imparted to them by some spiritual impression upon their mind. But, he continues, it is not so. It is simply by believing that you are able to enjoy the presence. The believing doesn't make it true, but it does certainly allow you to enjoy it. Your restful joy results from the resting faith. We want the presence of Christ because we want the joy and the peace of Christ. So rest on him. Believe his promise is what the Spirit leads us to do. This faith rests on the fact that's guaranteed by the Lord's own word. And surely this is the most sure foundation of your faith, the word of the Lord. But I do think there's a question here that we're we want to ask ourselves that it's a question that lingers about us regarding the presence of Christ. Now, if Christ is always with us, then how is it that he feels so far away sometimes? Well, you know, first I would 
saying we need to remind ourselves that feelings don't make something a fact. Okay? We always got to remember what's true. Our feelings shouldn't be leading us here. In regard to our feeling that Christ is far away, cannot, we can't verify that by our senses, our five senses, you know, sight, touch, taste, smell, hearing. So empirical evidence eludes us. So what is it that we are feeling? You know, I can simply, I can only allude to my own feelings here, but I do think I'm not the only one that feels this way. But when I feel that Christ is far from me, I think it's important that I should ask myself what I should expect to feel. What should I expect to feel? What does scripture tell me here? Shouldn't I feel joy? More, he argues that the joy of the Lord, it comes to us indirectly. That we should not seek the joy directly. Rather, it comes to us indirectly by especially not seeking for it. This, again, is wisdom that the world thinks is foolish. More, he, he goes on to say, he says, just simply rest by believing. Simply rest in the fact that Jesus is with you. All right? Again, knowing the truth, regardless of your feeling. Rest in the fact that Jesus is with you. Contemplate him in his most assured presence and love. Let your mind habitually I like the fact that he used that word. Let your mind habitually refer to his presence as with you always, which will always also help you resist sin because you'll be more mindful of the fact that he's with you. But habitually refer to his presence as always with you and, and his love for you as unchanged. The devil wants you to think that his, his love changes for you. It's unchanged then rest and peace will follow. Do you see that? It follows, but we didn't directly seek it. We sought Christ. This advice, I think it follows uh, with similar advice we've heard before regarding the benefits of Christ. You know, how Christians often go amiss in their pursuits because they seek first the benefits of Christ. You know, those, the joy and the peace. They seek that, those benefits instead of seeking first and foremost the person of Christ. Now, our flesh, our heart, it's deceitful above all things. Our heart is, right? That's what scripture tells us. It may deceive us to pursue something that God in his providence is currently denying us for our good. We may want this thing that we think will bring joy in our life, but it's being withheld for a good reason. I could argue to myself, surely, surely, joy, and, and I can't say I've never done this, 
But surely joy in my work is a good thing. For God gave us work because he works. So I might push and push and push for a job that offers pleasures to my ego. And land myself in a job that steals my faith through some sort of compromise. And some gradual spiritual insensitivities. All right? Or as a keeper of the home. Ladies, I could tell myself, surely I'm meant for more than the drudgery of a dirty kitchen, a bottomless pit of laundry, and ungrateful children. Surely I have a mind like my husband that must seek challenges. So I could think I got to solve this problem, my joyless problem, by pursuing the same meaningful work as my husband. Because that seems to be the only solution to my happiness. And then I land myself embracing a worldview that very deceptively tears down the family. Now, most assuredly, addressing issues of woes in the workplace, woes in the home, these are very complex issues. And they can be very unique in their circumstances, and require godly wisdom. I just recently finished a book that was, I found to be very helpful. I would recommend to you ladies, if you have, maybe you've heard of it before, Even Exile by Rebecca Merkel. Um, really good. Even Exile, I would recommend that. Um, she talks about some of these things in a clear way. By not pursuing the person of Christ, the point is this, by not pursuing the person of Christ, but his benefits only first, that we might find ourselves, you know, relying on our own wisdom and our own strength to discern what is best for us. You know, seldom, if ever, do I get things right when I'm doing something in my own power. But by seeking first the person of Christ, I'm seeking the fountain of peace and joy. All right, so one question here. What does it look like? What does it look like to seek the person of Christ? Well, I can tell you it looks like an utter dependence upon him. Can you imagine what that looks like? You can use analogies to help you understand that, but can you imagine what that looks like? More and more dying to myself for him through obedience and devotion. It's going to be a prayerfulness throughout the day. It's going to look like that. It's going to include toiling in prayer. You know, if you have ever tried to sacrifice your busy time to shut the door, Spend time in prayer when your mind is telling you that you should or you could be doing something else that's more productive, more relaxing. Then I think you have some sense of what it means to toil in prayer. We should be toiling in prayer. We, can, we find that the person of, of Christ 
is where our joy is. Seeking him first. And in this way, we may better feel the very fact of his presence. All right. Last chapter. I'm going to kind of hopefully go through this a bit quicker. Chapter 12. To the believer concerning growth in grace and the fuller experience of life in Christ. Well, the author, he begins here in this chapter saying, whatever leads the soul to contemplate itself and to contemplate its circumstances, right? Often those are going to be difficult times that make you do this. Whatever leads the soul to do this is sure to be injurious unless it's always viewed in the light of Christ. In other words, whatever circumstance makes a person think within will be dangerous if it's not filtered through the truth of Christ. Don't be looking inside without looking through the lens of Christ. So how do we do this? Now, how can someone even be injured looking within the midst of, say, you know, the try, a harder trying circumstance? How can someone be injured doing this, looking with just fleshly eyes? You know, only looking within and around us, not looking upward. Well, the injury is going to be a self-inflicted wound here, is what Moore is talking about. You know, often it's going to be self-deprecation. And I don't mean the, the needed reminding of oneself that you're just a, a creature. You are a creature made by God. You are not God. And you depend completely upon him. No, that's, that's a... It's a sort of self-deprecation, you could argue, a realization that we should have. That's healthy. But the kind of self-deprecation that, that is a megaphone to what the devil is trying to tell you, those are demeaning words that you're allowing into your life. When you look within without through the lens of Christ... When you're going through these difficult times, sometimes you can be overly critical upon yourself. You can be telling yourself that you are not spiritually fit enough to belong to God. There's no way I can belong to God. Or, or God has abandoned me. Or what's the point in struggling against this sin anymore? You're parroting Satan, doing the, the work, the devil's work for him. And that, friends, is a sin. This sort of self-deprecation. What we want is to be more settled in Christ. You know, believing things about us and to us that are spoken by Christ, not by the devil. You know, the cause for many believers to be walking in gloomliness, it's either because more argues of a, a little knowledge or a, a, only a little remembering of Jesus' love and faithfulness, or it's because you're very little in your time looking to him or walking with him. You're, you're, again, you're looking down within and around, but you're not looking upward. We are to know and remember that Christ loved us. 
that he sought us. In, in 1 John 4.10, the apostle writes, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And just a few verses later, he says, We love because he first loved us. We can't get that around. We, we must not get that reversed. He loved us first. And he continues. And that love is unchanged. Should not do the work of the devil and self-deprecate ourselves when you're struggling in your faith, struggling in sin. You need to be remembering the promises. You know, a believer's love for the Lord or a believer's joy in the Lord it comes in response to Christ's love. That's why it's important to know he first loved us. It comes in response to his love. And it's not going to necessarily be in, in accordance with the amount of doctrinal knowledge that you possess. More, he writes, he says, the possession of much knowledge of Christ from the Bible but without living more fully upon him by faith is like being in the possession of much food and understanding well its nature and properties, but not partaking of it. I thought that was a pretty helpful analogy. He continues, he says, the failure of spiritual strength, like the failure of physical strength, is caused by either hidden disease, open irregularities, improper food, or insufficiency of that which is good. So, I, I like that natural analogy he provides for us. To see what we need spiritually. From a physical perspective. You know, what happens to our bodies, for example, if our minds, or to our, our minds, if there's a disease that's eating away at us, but we don't know about it. You know, we just know that we don't feel 100%. There's something wrong. But we, we don't really know what's going on. You catch it too late. If you discover that disease too late, sometimes there's no turning it around. You know, sometimes on the surface, for us to see that there's something going on, we can tell that something's off about ourselves or about a person because it's being manifested on the outside. But, you know, like that story of the emperor's new, new clothes, walking around, not realizing what he looks like on the outside. You know, we could be in a position of very, uh, an awkward situation, not knowing that the sin that we're manifesting on the outside is so ugly. It's so obvious to everyone, but we're not seeing it ourselves because our eyes are diverted elsewhere. You know, sometimes what, from a physical perspective, what ails us is bad food. That old adage, you are what you eat, it tends to be more right in the long run than it does in the short run. You eat the bad thing long enough, that's when it starts to affect you. But for a while, I'm feeling fine. It's not doing anything to me. So you think it's okay to keep doing it. Uh, the problem is that things manifesting themselves in the long run, these things are more eased into. You know, gaining weight in your years later on. 
because you think you can still eat like a teenager. So I've been told. Um, you know, subjecting ourselves to bad influences is the same thing. You know, feasting on these bad influences, it's going to eventually take its toil on us, in our faith, in our spirituality. Uh, this reality is especially convicting for us as parents, considering what we allow in our homes. Because a lot of these things don't show up for a while. Now, the, the last natural analogy that Moore shared was the unhealthful impact of insufficiency of what is good. You know, simply not getting enough of the good food. You know, time. Time is one constant that cannot be manipulated. It can't be stored up. It can only be used. You know, and enough time goes by, even though you may have avoided some of the more known harmful foods, simply given enough time without good food, the body's going to weaken. It's going to age more rapidly. You know, this has been said before. We cannot store up grace. We must continually go back to the source of grace every single day. He will have us coming to him every day. The Spirit will lead us to Christ every day. You know, what did Christ say? He said, we're going to remember this again when we take the Lord's Supper. He said of himself, this is my body, which is for you. He is the source of our, our grace every day. And not getting enough of him, it's going to leave us fighting our enemies who are much more powerful than we are in our own strength. So not getting enough of the good things as well. You know, the knowledge of Scripture and the, and the things of the Lord, without the faith, without the believing and acting on that belief, you, you're just going to have this knowledge that puffs up. And you're going to have spiritual indigestion. You know, it, it's a bunch of undigested truth. That doesn't nourish your body. So... Um, I'm going to skip ahead right here because we are way out of time. Um, in the end, the author, he's encouraging us to take our spiritual inventory. You know, ask ourselves if we're giving Christ our first fruits every day. Um, remembering that lesson from Mary and Martha. You know, how Martha was so busy that, you know, it had distracted her from thinking that the temporal things of the day are more important than sitting at the foot of Christ. You know, not taking that time to toil in prayer because you have better things to do. And we are so very connected to Christ. And that is by design. We are so connected to Christ in every way that as new creations, with that spirit that's been made alive, the happiness that we are and then that we are made for it's completely centered in him we'll only find it in him so he closes there um, with some good encouragement I think on how we can be looking to continue to grow in faith so we can experience that fuller life in Christ it's, it's centered in him